Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer before we dive into the scriptures this morning, shall we? Father God, we, Lord, we come to your word now, and we ask that you would open eyes. Lord, we ask that what seems to be hard in the scriptures would be made easy and applicable to our lives. And Lord, only the spirit which dwells in us as believers can do that. Without the Spirit interpreting for us the Scriptures, without it making plain the the ways of application, Father, we would be in a mess. And so, Father, we ask for uh, the Spirit to come now, uh, even while I'm praying, God, and to open our eyes to the Scriptures. May we be faithful to the text, Father, and faithful to you. May we be Christians who are rooted and grounded and driven into the Scriptures daily, from which we gather all of life. Father, we ask that you would help us with this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Mark chapter 10 is where we'll be, but before we, we get there, I just kind of want to recap where we landed the plane last week, uh, which is an understanding that, that marriage, rightly understood, is a good gift given to mankind by God the Father. We all long for deep human intimacy, and we all desire to be known by those we do life with. From the most stoic of us, we all wish to be known. We all wish to lay aside the mass with which we present ourselves to the world and to be known for who we truly are underneath of us. And aren't you glad that the good news of the gospel is that we can do that? You see, marriage is the highest form of human relationship we can have, and thus it is more important than your best friend, more important than your co-workers, more important than your favorite client, and listen, it's, more, it's the most important relationship in our lives because it's the only human relationship, check this, where two things become one. Only one. Nowhere else in the scripture, nowhere else in life are we given the understanding that two things becoming one flesh outside of the marriage relationship. And last week, we looked at how the fact that the marriage is the ultimate picture about Christ and the church. Ephesians, Ephesians 5.31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and Paul says, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So understand this, like, let's use an analogy. Like, so Jesus comes on the scene, he's trying to teach his disciples things. What's he do? He looks around to what's around him, right? He looks around, he sees the sheep, and he says, oh, I am like the great shepherd. But understand this, that, that Jesus did not look at the sheep as an illustration to understand, to show who he is. Rather, understand that God created sheep for the express purpose that when Jesus arrived onto the earth, that we would have a picture of what it means for him to be the great shepherd. Understand that? Like, Jesus created trees so that he could be strung up on them. So change how you read the Bible. So change how you read and understand all the things that Christ said. So that Jesus gave us the picture of marriage, not just so that we would enjoy relationship and human intimacy with one another, but so that we would know when Christ came on the scene, when he died for the church, we would have something in human experience with which we could reach to, to say, that's like Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. Marriage is a picture of the Christ and his love for the church. And since our marriages are to be a declaration to the world, that Christ loves his church. And the implication is that our marriages ought to look a whole lot like Christ loving the church. That's why as Christians, 
We need to regain this high view of marriage. We need to understand and see marriage as the good gift that it is. This is why it's so dangerous for us to begin to play around with and understand the Bible's definition of marriage as being something other than what it is. Take, for example, cohabitation. This type of relationship is birthed out of such a small view of marriage, isn't it? Right, at best, cohabitation is, is a marriage, is to marriage what apathy is to growth. It's an indifference to marriage which seeks to say that there is no point in marriage, since marriage means nothing. At worst, it's an outright refusal to follow the command of God in marriage, but still enjoy the benefits of marriage. In other words, cohabitation is simply two people pretending to be married. Two souls pretending to be one flesh while never actually entering into the sacred covenant of marriage itself. And you see, the gospel says to those living in such relationship that there is so much more depth, so much more beauty, so much more to be enjoyed in this relationship. War takes same sex. This type of relationship is a refusal of the natural ordering of human relationships. This relationship... And those practicing it or celebrating it is a rejecting of truth and embracing a lie, Romans chapter 1. The scriptures say that we should be stressed, woe to man, if we call evil good and good evil. But our culture has embraced this and lovingly accepted it. So much so that governments in the name of anti-discrimination have created a legal structure of this relationship and called it marriage. But the gospel says to those living in such relationships that there is hope for repentance and that we should reject the lie that even if our hearts want something wicked or perverse, that we are more than our base inclinations or desires. You see, the gospel says that we are more than our sin. Or take, on the other hand, polygamy. This type of relationship, at its best, is thinking that we know better than God and at worst, thinking that we are more loving than God. This relationship structure pretends that multiple souls can become one flesh. It assumes that God withheld from Abram or from Adam on the day that he created Eve, since he did not create more than one wife. It pretends to have a higher view of love using claims such as, we just all love each other very much. What we see in this relationship is again a refusal to understand how God created the world to be. And see, the gospel says to those living in such relationships that the ultimate love that we can know is not one with another, but rather that Christ gave himself for us, for one bride, and that this gospel can reshape our thinking. Now, you might be sitting in your seat wondering, who cares, Pastor? Just let them do what they're going to do. Can't we just allow people to do what they want to be happy? Shouldn't we simply let them be? Is it really that bad, Pastor? Or you might be saying to yourself, why does it seem that Christians are always picking on this idea of marriage? Why do they even care? Can't we just preach the good news of the gospel, which is that Christ died for sinners without getting into politics, Pastor? And my answer to all of those questions is simply this. Christianity has suffered more damage and more deconstruction from the appeasement of our culture and in untethering ourselves from the scriptures than anything else. We see when we as Christians begin to give ground, when we begin to turn away from the scriptures, then we have no stopping point. When our lives are not rooted in all of the scriptures, we begin to follow the ever-changing winds of our societies. You see, we, when we prioritize an easy believism gospel, 
that salvation is more important than knowing the God of the universe and all of his majesty, we settle for a type of veneer Christianity that does not have a backbone. And we've seen this play out in our culture, haven't we? Cohabitation allowed the apathy of commitment to change our view on the importance of marriage. It said we can commit to each other without actually needing to become one flesh. This then gave rise to same-sex marriage because now Christianity no longer has a corner on the market of defining what marriage is and what the ultimate human relationship is. And if you no longer need to enter into a covenant relationship to last one's whole life, then there is, in effect, a redefinition of marriage. Now the scope has broadened from a covenant relationship between one man, one woman, to last one's whole life, to a relationship that between you and whoever you want to last one's whole life. And this, of course, we can see, since there is no longer a fundamental definition of marriage, since we no longer have grounds on which to stand, this is giving rise to polygamy and polyamory. Because now, who gets to decide what's right and wrong? Who gets to say that a marriage should be a covenant between a monogamous relationship to last one life? As a matter of fact, who gets to say that a relationship has to last one's life? Now, if you're an unbeliever in the room this morning, you're probably shaking your head thinking you have somehow found one of those fundamentalist preachers who just simply believes the Bible and is out of touch with the modern times. And you would be partially correct. Because as a Christian, we believe, I believe the scripture alone gets to define all of life, all the things, how they actually are and how they should be. The scripture alone gets to define. Now, you might be a Christian in the room this morning And you're most likely silently nodding your head and saying, Amen, Pastor. But I might I submit to you this morning that in this deconstruction of marriage, I have intentionally left out one crucial step. You see, before the rise of cohabitation that we see playing out in our culture, there was another more deadly, more devastating attack from the enemy on this pillar of humanity's greatest relationship. The attack of divorce. Easy divorce. No fault divorce. You see, if you spend enough time living, or if you spend enough time with people living in cohabitation relationships and ask them, as I often do, why don't you just simply get married? Why don't you enter into this covenant for the rest of your lives? You will hear begin, people begin to say kind of the same things. They say things like, I have known too many people who have gotten a divorce. So it's just easier just to forego the whole thing. They say, marriage is more expensive than divorce, so I'll just forego all those expenses. Or, our relationship is the same thing as married folks down the road, and if we split up, there's less paperwork involved. You see, divorce tarnishes the name of marriage because divorce always comes from sin. Let's, let's jump into the text here. Mark 1, or Mark 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 1. Look what he says here. And he left there, went to the region of Judea, and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Here we see the Pharisees do what Pharisees do. Once again, coming to Jesus to test him, they ask, Is it okay if a man divorces his wife? They ask the question without nuance and without clarification, implying that they are looking to see if a man can for any reason divorce his wife. 
You see, these cats knew their Old Testament way better than you and I know our Old Testament. So Jesus asked them, what did Moses command you? In other words, notice this. He is asking, what does the law say on this matter? Pay attention to what Jesus does here because it gives so much light on how he actually answers the question. The Pharisees ask, is it lawful? They don't ask, is it right? Is it how God intended the world to work? But rather they said, is it okay according to the law? And Jesus responds, well, what does the law say on the matter? Do you know that the Bible, Jesus grew up reading what we call the Old Testament was in three parts. The first part was the Torah or the law, the five books of the Pentateuch. So there you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of your English Bibles. That was what the, the scriptures called the law or the writings of Moses or the law of Moses, all the same thing. And then the second section, you had the prophets. This consisted of Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and what we call the minor prophets, what they called the twelve, the writings of the twelve, the twelve prophets. And then simply you had the, the, the third section of the, Old Test, the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, which is the writings, or otherwise known as the Psalms. This consisted of Psalms, Proverbs, and Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. You see, we see Jesus actually mention this in the scriptures. You see, Luke 24, 44 says this. It says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You see, Jesus is saying the whole, the whole thing, the whole shebang, Old Testament, all about me. That's why we don't untether ourselves from the Old Testament. You understand this, right? Like, this is the scriptures that Jesus grew up reading and he said they all point to him. So to ignore the Old Testament in our own study, in our own devotion, our own life of faith, we disservice and actually show that we don't actually believe what Jesus said. And so here's what Jesus does. He says, what does the law of Moses tell you on this matter? And the Pharisees answers. He says, well, well, Moses allowed a man to divorce his wife as long as his paperwork was in order. You see, they knew their Old Testament. And in order to be Pharisees, these brothers had the first five books of the Bible committed to memory. And that was before the help of Bible memory apps. And so, knowing what Jesus was going to say, they immediately think of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, which says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. You see, this is how they responded. But notice how Jesus responds. We already spent the majority of our time last week. You see, these jokers had all the first five books of the Bible in memory, and yet they couldn't see the why behind it. They were blind to the fact that the reason this provision of divorce was in, their, uh, in, the, in the Testament itself was not simply to allow divorce. Rather, what's Jesus say? He interprets for them the why that provision was in the law to begin with. Look at verse 5. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. You see, it was their hardness of heart. Jesus is saying here that the reason the law allowed for divorce was because these, these jokers are sinful, hard-hearted, don't believe the Scriptures. Divorce always comes from sin. In other words, God provided legitimate biblical grounds for divorcing one's spouse, but it wasn't because he viewed marriage as so much less than what it actually is, but because he knew how sinful the hearts of men and women are. Divorce always comes from a place of sinfulness. 
Secondly, this morning, I won't spend much time here. We see Jesus elevating marriage. This is the, if you want to go back and listen to last week's sermon, look at verse, nine, or verse 5. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here they, 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 they say, uh, you know, the scriptures say it's okay to do this. And Jesus says, yeah, because you guys are wicked, because you guys are hard-hearted, because you guys are sinful. And then notice what he does. He said, they ask, is it okay according to the law? Jesus answers uh, by asking what the law said. And then they reply, the law says it's cool, homie. And Jesus says, that's correct, because you all are busted up. The law says you can. However, he didn't stop there. He elevates marriage. He says, but from the beginning of creation, he goes to Genesis 1, 27, Genesis 2, 24. What's he doing here? He's reframing their mindsets. He's elevating marriage. He's changing the foundational starting point of their definition of marriage. You see, verse 6, but from the beginning is a changing of the reference point from the law which they were coming from to what it actually should be. We see Jesus do this time and time again, don't we? Right? He, he elevates the command of not murdering to simply not hating. We see him elevate the commandment of not committing adultery to, to not even lusting in your own heart. He elevates the, the law of retribution to a law of grace. He elevates the definition of who your neighbor is to include those who you hate. And here he elevates marriage to its proper place of understanding. That it is God who has joined one man and woman, one woman together. Therefore, let no man separate. You see Jesus doing this time and time again. He's saying, you're coming from the wrong point. The Pharisees were coming from the law. And he said, yes, that's what the law says. But if you go back farther, if you understand deeper, then you'll see marriage is so much more than that. So much more. Lastly, I want to talk about the Christian and divorce and remarriage. How are we to think about all these things, Pastor? Look back at verse 10. In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. You see, the disciples are still confused. They're like, we don't know what you're saying, Jesus. That sounds so against everything we've believed to be true up until this point. And Jesus goes a step farther in his elevation of marriage. He says that whoever divorces his wife and marries another is committing adultery. He's saying it's sinful. Now, not only that, he says if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she is committing adultery. You see, before, there was always thought in the terms of the man doing the divorcing. But Jesus is flipping around. He says the whole thing's a mess. Man divorces, woman divorces, it's all a mess. And now here, in the text of Mark, Jesus makes no exception. His answer seems very simple, very clear. Anyone who divorces and remains and remarries is sinning. So the question for us today is, is it true? Is that actually what Jesus meant? See, this is the part where believing the scriptures begin to get uncomfortable. Because we think, ah, can you really say that, pastor? You say you believe the scriptures, what do you do? This is the part where I want to be very pastoral, very loving, very kind, very Gracious, because many of you in this room have walked this path. Is this all the scriptures tell us about Christians and divorce and remarriage? If it was, 
We should believe it and hold to it and understand where our lives run contrary to the Word of God. You see, if this was all the Scriptures say, it would be a very black and white question. But, but, but turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Here we have the same story that uh, Mark records for us in Mark 10. Matthew 19, Matthew is telling us uh, this same run-in with the Pharisees. Same story. Luke also records this instance. Mark, John does not. But let's look and see how Matthew tells the story. Matthew 19 Verse 1 says this, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered into the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is such a case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Notice the similarities between Mark's telling of the story and Matthew's telling of the story. So the Pharisees are still testing. Jesus still asking about the lawfulness of divorce. Jesus still grounding his arguments for the permanence of marriage in the created order. Still says that divorce and remarriage means that there is adultery in play. And we still have the disciples pushing back against it. Only here, Matthew's much more explicit. It's like their jaws hit the floor. Couldn't believe it. They were floored by Jesus' teaching. Absolutely floored by Jesus' teaching. So much so they said, if that's true, if what you're saying is true, Jesus, we just shouldn't do the whole thing. Just ignore the whole enterprise of marriage. But notice this one little exception there in verse 9. Except for sexual immorality. The King James Version says, except for fornication. Here Jesus makes one exception in the Matthews text where Mark did not. Now this brings us to a pretty important, what, uh, what the theologians and the people who study this kind of, they call the hermeneutic, how we understand reading scripture. This is important for how we read our Bibles. You see, since we believe that God is the ultimate author of scripture, and that because God is not confused, then at no point does the text ever contradict itself. And notice what I'm saying. These are two massively important, weighty things that will help you as you approach the Scriptures. Number one, God is ultimate author of Scripture. Right? This is an argument from his revelation, right? So like, if God did not give us the Bible, we would be utterly and hopelessly lost. We would have no way of knowing what's, what, what's real in the world. As a matter of fact, we would look a lot like our culture today, unable to say what a woman is without the Scriptures. You see, God is the ultimate author of Scripture. You see, verses like 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching all of them, every single one of them. 2 Peter 1.20 says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke. Listen, this is the key phrase, from God, as they were carried along 
by the Holy Spirit. So we believe. We're, we're, we're in a Baptist church. We're in a Christian church. So what we believe is that all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is all God's word for you and I today. That in it there are no errors. There are uh, no wrongs. It's all right. That's not to say that everything in the scriptures is condoned by God, right? So David, uh, man after God's own heart, couldn't get it right with the ladies. We don't, see, we don't say, oh, we, you see, David, man after God's own heart, married multiple wives. We don't say that that's correct living. We say that's actually the, the exception that proves the rule. It's like that's what you don't want to do. So we believe God is the ultimate author of scripture. Number two, we believe that God is not confused. He never changes his mind. He knows all things from beginning to end. He knows how everything could have been, and he knows how everything that, like, possibly could have been, how it would have worked out. Every single decision every single human has ever made across everything, whether it happened or didn't happen, he knows all things. All things. Not confused. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Numbers 23.19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Matthew 24.35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So this brings us to something. Because in Mark, it seems like he's saying, you know, any reason, divorce and remarriage, adultery. But here in Matthew, he says, well, except for, um, you know, this, this sexual immorality. So since it's true about the scriptures, what we believe about the scriptures being true, God's word not changing, then we somehow have to reckon with this difference between Matthew and Mark. So here it is. Matthew actually mentions the exception clause twice. First in the Sermon on the Mount, 532, and then here in this text, verse 9. You see, this was a subject being debated by the Jews, and it was of particular importance to that audience. Mark and Luke mentioned the general rule because their audience were not interested in parsing the law of Moses. It was more important to get the main rule across to the Gentiles. Listen, marriage is for life. That's what I did last week in last week's sermon. Like, this is it. This is the highest thing upon which we can build our lives. Like, this is what marriage is for. It's what it is. You'll notice if you read John's gospel, he doesn't even bother, bother mentioning the discussions about divorce because this ought to be less of an issue for Christians who already know Christ's teachings about marriage. So we see that it's not really a contradiction at all, but really it's a proper understanding of reading the scriptures and putting together the bits and the pieces to form a whole. So based off what we've looked at so far, how should we think about divorce and remarriage? So far, we see that there is at least one exception to this permanence rule of marriage, and that of sexual sin. Let's look at one more. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Flip there with 1 Corinthians chapter 7. These texts that we're covering this morning are the main primary scriptures in the New Testament which speak upon this matter of marriage and divorce and remarriage. 1 Corinthians 7. Look at verse 10 with me. To the married, this is Paul talking to the Corinthian church, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, not I but the Lord, uh, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. 
If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother and sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? These passages of Scripture are the primary text from which we develop our understanding of what marriage is. Notice quickly, I'm just going to rattle these off, what Paul is saying here in regards to marriage. You can look at these verses. Number one, wives should not divorce. Here he says separate, uh, but this means divorce. Don't understand, don't impose on the text our understanding today, culture of separation being separate from divorce. No, no, what Paul has in mind here in verse 10 is that wives should not divorce their husbands. Verse 11, if there is a divorce, they should remain unmarried or else be reconciled. Number three, husbands should not divorce. Verse 11. Verses 12 and 13, number four, Paul establishes that what he is saying applies to both parts of the marriage. This isn't a one-way street for men and a separate road for women. These are the same streets. Number five, if an unbeliever is married to a believer and wants to stay together, they should not be divorced. Now, this, you've got to understand, this was a huge question for the early church, for first century. I mean, we don't even consider it in our marriages today, right? But, but this is a huge understanding because as uh, two unbelievers are married, living together, one would become a believer, and all of a sudden, now we've got this question, should I stay married or be separated? Should we stay married or, or get a divorce? Because he does not serve in the same God I am. He's not uh, living for the same things I am. Uh, how should we do this? And Paul says, no, 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 like, if they want to stay together, then you shouldn't get divorced. Number six, if the believer wants to divorce, this verse 15, and it's actually okay to be divorced. Number seven, there is no longer a covenant in this instance, verse 15. He uses the word here, enslaved, uh, that the, the believer is no longer enslaved to this covenant. This is wording used at the time of Paul's day of marriage contracts. Like this is the kind of language. So Paul is crystal clear in what he's saying. He's saying they're no longer bound to this covenant. So you have these two people, unbelievers, both don't love the Lord. One of them gets saved, loves the Lord now, and wants to serve the Lord. And the other says, I don't like that. I'm out. Paul says, it's okay. Let them go. You're no longer enslaved. And so here we have at least uh, a second ground for divorce. Desertion. If one of the other unbelieving partner wants to leave, let them go. Question. What other reasons are there for divorce? Answer, there are none. There are none. Now, in summary, in closing, I want to be very clear in what I am saying. Number one, marriage is the permanent covenant between one man and one woman, which lasts until death. This means the implications for our lives are those of us who are married should fight tooth and nail to keep the covenant. Number two, divorce is permissible but not necessary for two reasons, sexual sin and desertion. You say, Pastor, why use the word permissible? Why is divorce permissible? You see, Jesus argues for permanence and yet acknowledges that even in the law there were exceptions. Listen, this is a grace of God to us. It is. Because Jesus says this is the way things are supposed to be and yet I realize we're not there. This is beautifully graceful to us. This is why it's permissible. 
Number two, why, 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 why not necessary, right? So I said divorce is permissible, but not necessary. Why, why isn't it necessary? You see, in that day, they, they would actually teach, like, you should divorce. Like, even if it was one of these sins, out, kick them out, they're gone. But why do you say, pastor, that it's not necessary? You see, Christ said that, that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Therefore, even if one side of the covenant breaks the covenant, for one of the exceptions given, the picture of Christ's love for the church might be more clearly demonstrated in working through the hardness instead of divorce. So that's what I am saying. Now, I want to be crystal clear on the other side, what I, what I am not saying. Number one, this is the question that always comes up. Number one, women in physically abusive relationships must remain. That's, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying women in physically abusive relationships must remain in the covenant. You see, men who use their God-given strength, size, and power to continually, habitually, and repeatedly physically lay his hands on his wife actually shows himself to be an unbeliever. He demonstrates that he has no understanding of the gospel. Furthermore, his abusiveness towards his spouse shows that he has in fact deserted the marriage because he, no man, hates his own flesh. Therefore, those who find themselves in this type of relationship are under no obligation from the scriptures to remain in this covenant. Just let us see again. Number two, if a spouse breaks the covenant for sexual sins, the offended spouse must leave. That's not what I'm saying. You see, one of the clearest signs of the gospel in our marriages is the power and ability to forgive the greater the sin in the marriage, the greater the grace shown in the forgiveness of that sin. That's what the scriptures teach. And finally, I just want to say two things and then we'll close. Two things that the gospel has to say on this matter. Number one, you are forgiven. Listen, you're loved. Previously divorced, maybe not even for scriptural reasons. Listen, look right at me. You're forgiven. There's no shame upon which you need to walk in. You see, that's the power of the gospel. You are forgiven. You are more than your sin. You are a loved son. You are a loved daughter of the king on high. This is why the cross, this is what the cross is all about. The gospel frees us of our past sins. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Number two, you are empowered. Listen. This isn't some new age spiritual nonsense. You are empowered by the grace that has been purchased for you and by the Holy Spirit living within you for your marriage to survive 10,000 grievances. Not in your strength. Listen, if you are married, most of you are, or you're going to be married, and your spouse does that, you know, that, that one thing just drives you nuts Makes you want to bang your head against the wall if you have to tell them one more time not to do that. Listen, remember, the Holy Spirit is right now working in you to conform you to the image of Christ so that you can forgive one more time. And if you are that spouse, driving the other spouse crazy, remember that the Holy Spirit is working in you to conform you to the image of Christ so that you may lovingly serve in obedience to your spouse even if you think what they're asking for is ridiculous. So let me close with this. None of our marriages are perfect. You have a perfect marriage, raise your hand. 
None of our marriages are perfect, and the world will tell us every time that your spouse sins against you, that's grounds for divorce, no-fault divorce, that's what it means. It doesn't, there doesn't even have to be anything. You just decide one day to up and leave your wife and your, or your husband. That's what the world says is a possibility. And I'm saying, based upon the scriptures, you would be sinning in that moment. You would be lying about what the Christ who died for his church actually means. Because God never abandons us. In our sinfulness, he loves us. In our brokenness, he heals us. In our sin, he forgives us. What do we say to the world when we say, you know what? That woman just drove me crazy one too many times. It's the spirit of Christ in you which makes it possible for you to bear one more time their sinfulness. You put two broken people into a house together, what do you expect to happen? Brokenness. It's only through Christ that any of us survive marriage. It's only through Christ that any of us flourish in marriage. And I'm saying it's the greatest picture of Christ in the gospel that we can present to a lost and dying world is with our marriage. And yet, at the same time, I realize that there is real brokenness, real heartache, which may have grounds for, like, let's, they've already broken the covenant. What do we actually have here, Pastor? I understand there's difficulties, right? That's why the law was given in Deuteronomy 24, is that the brokenness of the world sometimes paints an imperfect picture. I get it. and I love you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word. Lord, so many brokenness is handed down generation to generation through divorce and separation and the covenants being lost. Generational suffering is passed down through divorce, and yet on the other hand, Father, generational blessings and fruitfulness and vitality and life and energy, Father, flow from successful marriages. But many of us in this room come from the brokenness of generational divorces, but, but some of us, Father, in the room come from, uh, we, we stand in the line of a long list of generational blessings. Lord, we we thank you for those who have always painted an imperfect picture of Christ and the cross and the church. Lord, we pray that, that we would, by the Holy Spirit, forgive one another in our marriages. We would work with, we would love and serve and support and uh, submit to an obedience to one another in the covenant of marriage, Father. Because there is no harder thing that could be done than for Christ to die on the cross. And he's done that. Therefore, we are empowered to, to go day by day by day into eternity telling the gospel story through our marriage with your strength and your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.